As I said today, we're going to be in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, and Isaiah chapter 7 uh, contains one of the most well-known verses as it pertains to the Christmas season, uh, as it prophesying the Messiah, right? It's the, it's the verse that we know well, the Lord will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you shall name him, and he will be called Emmanuel, right? So Christians and non-Christians know this verse because of how prevalent it is during the Christmas season. It's, it's central to the Christmas story. It gets put on all the cards. It gets put on the placards that are in front of people's houses. I mean, it is, it is like the verse that we look to or we remember as it pertains to the story of Christ coming into the world. And while the verse itself, Isaiah 7:14, is well known, I think the context out of which this verse comes is less known. One of the reasons I think that this verse, or the, the context of the verse is less known is because it's such an extremely political context. This verse, that, the, that the, a virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, this verse comes out of one of the most politically charged chapters in the Bible. And, and for a lot of reasons, that makes us uncomfortable, uh, or, or, or I don't know if it makes us uncomfortable, but it's just not something we associate with the Christmas season. I mean, when we enter into Christmas season, what's not at the forefront of our minds is politics. If anything, during the Christmas season, we try to push politics out of our mind. And so maybe for that reason, the context of this verse has gotten pushed aside. Or, or maybe we just take the perspective that we prefer not to mix politics and religion at all, right? Like we like politics and that's fine and it's got its place Monday through Saturday. But when it comes to Sunday mornings, let's keep politics out of religion don't talk about it, pastor, right? Like that's just kind of our approach. And, but today's passage makes us at least acknowledge the reality that politics exists and that God speaks into politics. And, and, and I'm not going to talk about modern day politics today. So whew, we can all exhale, right? right? All right whew, whew. But what I want us to see is that this beloved verse this verse that we cling to, this verse that we know well, this verse that is prevalent this time of year actually arises out of a very political context. And, and I think that that matters, and I think it's worth at least acknowledging. It reminds us that God is supremely interested in the affairs of human beings, right? God is not aloof. God is not far off. God is not, not watching it. God is not unconcerned. God is intimately involved in the affairs of human beings. He's intimately involved in the affairs of human beings on an individual level. So in your life, in your circumstances, what you're facing, God is concerned, God is involved, and God is at work. And at a political or collective level, God is interested, concerned, and at work. And so this recognizing the context out of which these verses come help us Help us to see the breadth of God's involvement in human affairs. It also reminds us, or at least, not at least, or also helps us to see the stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. So whenever God speaks into politics, Whenever, whenever that seems to happen, particularly in the Old Testament, we see a stark contrast between what is happening and what God is doing, right? Like the kingdom of God suddenly looks very, very different than what we're used to. And so again, we're going to see that this morning. So with that set up, let us go. Isaiah chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, starting at verse 1. 
when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaking as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, share Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the sons of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. All right, so let's just stop right there. I want us to, to, to fully get what's happening right here in the politics of the day. After Solomon, remember King David, and then you've got his son, King Solomon, takes over. Solomon was a really wise guy. Solomon also did some really dumb stuff for as wise as he was, which is always a little bit conflicting. But after King Solomon dies, his sons take over as the kings of Israel, and they make an absolute mess of the whole thing. The kingdoms become extremely factious and actually divide into, the kingdom of Israel becomes factious and divides into two kingdoms, right? Up in the north, you get the northern ten tribes, and they're the tribes of Israel. So this becomes the kingdom of Israel in the north. In the south, you have two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, become the kingdom of Judah, right? So we've got the northern tribes of Israel, we've got the southern tribes of Judah. King Pekah, in our text, is the king of the northern ten tribes. King Ahaz is the king of the southern tribes. Okay? Then we've got a third country, right? We've got the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah, and then we've got this third country, Aram, right? Aram is modern day Syria. And the king at this time is Rezin. There's also a fourth country at play in this text, despite the fact that it's not mentioned, but what's happening in the politics of the day, this is definitely a player. So there's a fourth country, which we know quite well, is the country of Assyria. All right? Assyria wanted the northern tribes of Israel and the, tri- and the, and the country of Aram, they, they wanted them to be a part of their empire, and so they're getting ready to attack them. Now, the northern tribes and Aram do not want to be a part of the Syrian empire. They want to maintain their independence. And so they're ready to resist the Assyrian empire. They're going to do battle. They're going to go toe-to-toe with them and try to fend them off. But they recognize that Assyria is a bigger and more powerful country. And so they need some help. And so the northern tribes of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel and Aram, come down to King Ahaz in Judah and say, will you join us? Will you form a coalition with us so that we can stand against Assyria and resist them? Right? And Ahaz says, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that we are ultimately going to lose that battle, and so I am not going to allow my kingdom of Judah to get involved in that resistance. Now, Israel and Aram... They're talking about this, and they're like, listen, we, we, there's no way we're going to submit ourselves to Assyria. We're just not going to let this happen. We have decided that we are going to fight, but we can't do it without them. We're not big enough. We're not strong enough. We need Judah and their forces. So the king of Israel, 
king of northern tribes, and the king of Aram get together and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to attack Judah at the capital, Jerusalem. We're going to go in, we're going to attack them, we're going to take out King Ahaz, and then we're going to put in the son of Tabeel. And he'll be a king that will take our side of things. He'll, he'll enlist Judah in our coalition, and then we will be able to go up against Assyria. Right? This is what's happening. I mean, can you see how, how wildly political this, this passage is so far? And, and, and you can even see, like, politics between ancient politics and modern-day politics haven't changed a whole lot. Right? This is still happening. We're like, we don't like that ruler. We're going to go in. We're going to take that ruler out. We're going to put one in that we like. Like, this still happens. This is what's happening right here. So God says to Isaiah, I need you to go and meet with Ahaz because he's facing a lot right now. And, and, and I love how specific, I just love how specific this is. Like, I need you to take your son and you're going to go to the end of the aqueduct at the upper pool on the road going to the launderer's field. Like, if you wanted to, you could go find that place, right? That would be like, I need you to go to the end of 116th where it butts at Naholio and, and runs into guys. Like, you know where that is, you could get there. So, so, God tells Isaiah, go and meet with him. And when you meet with Ahaz, here's what I want you to tell him. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. You need to hear this, Ahaz. Be careful. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. I... I know you are facing some immense threats right now, and I know those threats are coming at you from a couple of different areas. I mean, you've got two threats that you're facing. One, one is Assyria, because eventually Assyria is going to come down. Those people are ruthless. They're violent. They are going to come for you at some point. So yes, you're staring down the barrel of that threat, but you've also got this more immediate threat between the, between the uh, kingdom of Israel and Aram. I know that you're facing a lot. I know that you have every reason to be scared. I know that you have every reason to freak out right now. Don't. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. In fact, not just that, I want you to know that those, those, those threats that you're facing are nothing but smoldering stubs of firewood, which is such a great image, is it not? When, when, when we were kids, that's not true. To this day, this still happens. Whenever I sit around a fire, right, I find a poker stick, right? And I find a big, a big stick, it's quite long, and you sit there and you just play with the fire. You move the logs around, you try to make the fire to keep, keep going, right? And, and, and you still, like even to this day, leave it in the fire just a little bit long so it catches fire, and then you pull it out and you just watch it burn, right? Yeah. I was going to say like that, ah, I used to do that as a kid, but it's not true. I'm 40 and I still do it. You watch it burn and then after a while, you stick it into the ground to put it out. And you pull it out of the ground and the fire's out. But the end of the stick is still smoking, right? And if you were to touch the end of the stick, it would burn you. But it wasn't as dangerous as when it was actually on fire. That's the image that Isaiah is saying to Ahaz. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. 
The threats you're facing are simply smoldering stubs of firewood. Israel and Aram can hurt you. They'll burn you. It will be difficult to face them, but ultimately, they're just smoldering. I mean, just take that for just a moment and apply it to some of the situations that you might be facing in your life. Because what you're facing is hard. That thing right now that's, that's threatening you, that thing that keeps you lying awake at night, that thing that makes your heart race just a little bit, that thing, it's difficult, it is hard, it is not something that you would want anybody else to go through, it's not something that you would ever dream of having to walk through. It's, it can burn you. But in the hands of the Almighty God, whatever it is that you're facing is ultimately just a smoldering stick. It will not consume you. It is not a fire that will burn you down to the ground and leave nothing but ashes and rubble. It's just, it's just smoldering. It's just enough to burn you. It's just enough to hurt, but that hurt will eventually fade. So be careful. Yes, absolutely. Be careful, but keep calm. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. And you can trust that. You can trust those words. You can, because here, here's why you can trust that you can be calm and you don't have to lose heart and you don't have to be afraid. You can trust that because that's what God ultimately wants you to believe. God wants you to believe it so much that he's willing to give you a sign. Look at what comes next in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 7. Yet yeah, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the, rain, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now let's just stop right there for, for just a moment. God says to Ahaz, be careful. Keep calm. Do not be afraid and do not lose heart. And I want you to believe that so much. I want your faith to be so strong that you can stand on those promises that I want you to ask me for a sign. This is what God says to Ahab. I want you, Ahaz, to ask me for a sign. Now, being good, pious people, that probably sounds wrong, right? Maybe even a little sacrilegious because we, if we've grown up in the church, if we've been around Christian circles, if whatever, if we've been around religion enough, you know this idea, like you don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? This is actually a verse, which makes Ahaz's response seem extremely pious, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Oh, look at Ahab, he, or Ahaz. He knows the verses. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's, he's, oh, he's just a wonderful human being. Except for the fact that there might be reasons that Ahaz doesn't want a sign from God. In 2 Kings, we learn that Ahaz, fearing attack of the attack of Israel and Aram, actually goes to the king of Assyria and says, I need your protection. I got these two 
these two countries here are coming after me, so would you protect me? And in payment of your protection, we will subject ourselves to your, to your rule. And now you've got God coming to Ahaz through Isaiah and saying, <laughs> slow down here. Slow your roll. Keep calm. Don't be reactive. Don't do anything dumb. Don't fear those smoldering stubs of firewood. Stand firm in your faith and trust me. And if you stand firm in your faith, what you fear will not happen. You will not be destroyed. But you have to stand strong in your faith. And so because of that, I want to help you. I'll give you a sign, whatever sign it is that you want. And Ahaz says, no, 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 no. I couldn't ask that of you. And I truly believe that the reason Ahaz says that is because Ahaz doesn't want to believe. Does not want to put his trust in God. Because what God is asking Ahaz to believe is hard. He looks out at the situation and he cannot see how what God is promising is going to come about. He can't see how he will not end up being destroyed by either Israel and Aram or by Assyria. It makes no sense to him whatsoever. That's too much. That's too great of a leap. That kind of faith is too great. It's so hard. It's so great that Ahaz doesn't want to believe. And so it's easier for Ahaz to sell his soul to a king who promises to protect him than to wait on the salvation from the Lord. This is the fundamental question before Ahaz and before you and I. Will you trust God? Or will you trust an earthly ruler who promises to protect you? Will you trust God or will you trust your own insights? Your own decision making? Your own ability to secure your future? Will you trust God with your well-being or will you work to preserve that yourself? Will you trust something other than God because of what you see, because of what you feel, because of what makes sense? Or will you ultimately put your trust in God because of what God has said? If you stand firm in your faith, this threat, this pain, this hardship, this difficulty will not stand. It will not happen. It will not take place. I mean, can you see how hard that is? This is why I don't think that Ahaz's piety is piety. I, I think it's self-reliance, self-preservation. I think it's Ahaz avoiding God. He's already got his mind up, made up, and he doesn't want evidence that his decision is wrong. He doesn't want to do that hard thing. He doesn't want to have to be confronted with the reality that his faith has to be placed in God. He wants to take what seems like a sure thing 
If I do this, I know we will live, at least for a little bit longer. And as a result of that, God is angry. And it's God's response through Isaiah that I think really helps solidify this idea that Ahaz ultimately doesn't want the sign from God. Look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right and the wrong or reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the body knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. (laughs) Ahaz Ask me for a sign, anything you want, from the lowest depths to the highest heights. Ask me for what you want. No, 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 God, I can't, I can't ask you for that. I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Fine. I mean, this is literally the response. Fine, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. The virgin will conceive, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, verse 14 Full of all kinds of controversy. Scholars like to go back and forth back and forth on this particular verse. And the reason they go back and forth on this verse is because there's a lot of ambiguity around the word translated virgin, right? The reason that there's ambiguity around this word that's translated virgin is because Isaiah, you, there, there's a particular word in Hebrew for virgin. It's a very specific word, and Isaiah does not use that word. Isaiah uses a word that gets translated something along the lines of a young woman of marriageable age. Now we make a bunch of assumptions that she is a virgin because she is a young woman of marriageable age who is not yet married. And the reason we say that she is not yet married or or is a virgin is because there's a very specific word for a woman who is not a virgin and is married. Right? Isaiah doesn't use that word either. He uses this word right in the middle that means a young woman of a marriageable age, implying that she's not married, which implies that she therefore is a virgin. Right? So all of this is behind this one little word. And so scholars go back and forth. Is it a virgin? Is it not a virgin? Is it a young woman? Why didn't Isaiah use this word? Why didn't Isaiah? I mean, you can find tomes on, seven, on uh, chapter 7, verse 14. The other reason that scholars write a whole bunch on this particular verse is because if you were to take a very plain reading of the text, right? You read chapter 7, you got the historical context, you understand what's going on, the relational dynamics between Ahaz and Isaiah and all of that sort of Take a very plain reading of the text, and then you were to be asked the question, who is the prophecy for? The answer would be Ahaz. Very straightforward. That's who the prophecy is for. Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz on behalf of God and says, fine, if you don't ask for a sign, God's going to give you a sign anyways. See that woman over there? 
She will conceive. She will give birth to a son. By the time the son is, that, that child is able to determine right from wrong, which at that time would have been approximately two or three years old, the kings you fear will have been laid to waste. The prophecy has a very clear time stamp on it. And it is not for 700 years from that moment when Jesus shows up on the earth. It's for right there. This is for Ahaz. The reason we apply it to Christmas is because Matthew, in his gospel, quotes this verse. He reaches back into time, grabs hold of this verse, and pulls it forward and says, this applies to Jesus. So here's what I think. All the controversy, all the stuff that you came here for this morning wanting to have determined for you. I think that God inspired Isaiah to use the ambiguous word so that it would fit both contexts. First, so that Isaiah could say to Ahaz, right there, that's your sign. A young woman is pregnant and she will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us, because God is with us. Despite what you see with your eyes, despite the fear that you feel, despite all of that, God is with us and that child is a sign of God's presence among us. Don't you, I mean, you can try to look away from this miracle. You can try to be pious and say, I'm not going to put the Lord my God to the test. But you can't deny that that woman is giving birth to a son. That's the sign. God is with us. God has not abandoned us. God has not walked away from us. God with us. Emmanuel. And because God inspired Isaiah to use the ambiguous word, Matthew reaches back, pulls that verse out and applies it to Jesus and said, Jesus is the greater sign that God is with us. Yeah, that verse applied to Ahaz and God was with Israel, never abandoned Israel, but even more so, God is with us because of Jesus, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, to a son. She will call him Emmanuel. And that's my second and I think most imp more important thought. Scholars argue all back and forth about what's happening in the verse, but I don't think it changes anything about what God is saying. I don't think it changes if it's a, if it's a young woman. I don't think it changes if you apply it only to Ahaz or, or, or if you apply it 400, 700 years and say, no, this was actually a prophecy and that's what it was intended for. I don't think any of that matters. I think that ultimately what God is saying stands no matter what. I'm going to give you a sign. And I'm giving you a sign so that you can stand in faith that I am with you. I'm giving you this sign because I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith that I will not leave you to the threat that you're facing. I want you to have faith that I'm working out your salvation. I want you to abandon quick fixes. I want you to abandon trying to save yourself. I want you to abandon trying to figure it out on your own. I want you to abandon trusting and pragmatism. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am with you. So here is a sign. A virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and you shall call him Emmanuel. 
Don't be like Ahaz and look away. Don't be like Ahaz and try to figure it out on your own. Don't be like Ahaz and do what makes sense. Don't try to secure your own salvation. Your salvation will not be found in presidents or in patriotism. Your salvation will not be found in money or status. Your salvation will not be found in kids or family. Your salvation will not be found in your ability to be a moral person or to make good decisions or acts of service or generosity or common sense. Your salvation is found in God alone. Salvation comes from God and God has chosen that his salvation would come through his son, Jesus Christ, and his son's death and resurrection. That's the sign. I want you to believe that. So here's the sign. And listen, it's an upside down sign, right? With enemies at the gate, God tells us to look for a baby. A helpless child. Not a warrior. Not, not, not some show of power to reassure us that the omnipotent God of the universe is fighting on our behalf and will eventually sweep away our enemies with a sword. No, we're to look for a helpless child. We're to look for a baby who can't hold its head up on its own. We're to look for innocence. We're to look for humility. We're looking for something ultimately vulnerable that can be struck down like a lamb led to the slaughter. That's our sign. The cross is a sign that God is with us. The Holy Spirit, the seal that it is ours, baptism and Eucharist, the sacred spiritual acts that remind us that the sign is among us. God with us. Emmanuel. So, this Christmas, this Advent, as we've pushed into the reality of the world, as we've acknowledged that there's darkness around us, as we have reflected on the fact that the darkness still seems to creep in around us and that the world is not as it should be, Will you trust God in the sign that he's given? Will you believe that the child that was born in a manger is your only hope in life and in death? Will you believe that maybe for the first time Place your faith in that of truth. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. But either way, would you, would you take God at his word and stand firm in faith on that promise? That what you're facing, that the difficulty that's surrounding you, that thing that makes your heart race will not stand. It may burn. It may be a smoldering stub. But you can, in good faith, be careful. You can keep calm. You don't have to be afraid. And certainly you do not have to lose heart.
Because no matter what, no matter what you're facing, no matter how difficult and dark it is, Emmanuel, God with us. That alone is our Advent hope. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the hope of Advent in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that you have given us the sign of your Son who took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, who was obedient to the Father even unto death, and after three days rose from the grave. We give you thanks that because of this sign that you have given to us, we can be assured of our salvation, that our sins have been taken from us, that the brokenness of the world will be put right, that justice will, will come, and that all things will be restored to the degree that one day every tear will be wiped from every eye. We give you thanks that we have that sign, and I pray that because of that sign and by the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, we would stand firm in faith. That no matter what we're facing, our faith in Jesus Christ would triumph. May this Christmas, may our hope be strengthened. Christ made our only comfort and our hope ignited. In the name of the Father, the Son, 